Coming up this hour, we're going to have to talk about the election. And then we're joined by David Coises, author of Political Visions and Delusions. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Hope you got some sleep last night. I imagine our audience is probably divided in how they even answer that question, which we're, of course, going to get into a little bit. And before we kind of dive into what I'm sure is on most people's minds, Brian, you were mentioning off air that uh, you actually enjoyed last night a good deal. Uh, I do. I did. I mean, waking up and not knowing who's been elected is really frustrating and you know, it's kind of crazy, but I did. I, I watched election results and I was telling you off the air, as you said, I have a 16 year old daughter who is in, a, in an AP government class learning all about the Electoral College, learning. She's been learning a ton about our government. And so her and I having these conversations, she was just peppering me with questions, made it really fun last night. So I did. I enjoyed it. I do find it frustrating where we're at currently. Uh, but yeah, how about you? Did you find I know you were tweeting a lot, but were you watching a lot or were you kind of like, I, I want to unplug from this last night a little bit? I was sort of ducking in and out. I, 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 for some reason, I don't know where this comes from. My friends were asking me about this last night. I like to listen to the coverage, but not stare at it the whole time. So I didn't have it on the TV. I would, you know, I'd listen to coverage in the background, you know, while I, while I worked out and I was, you know, refreshing the, you know, the maps and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I, for me, it was sort of a, if I stare at this too long, I, I feel like my eyes might burn out of my <laughs> head. So so, I, yeah, I was definitely paying attention. I'm really excited, actually, uh, coming up next because David Coises is going to join us. And he he just is, I think, a masterful blend of like political education and philosophy sure. and theology. And so so I'm not even going to try to to do what I know he's going to do much better than you or I could. Uh, but I, I found this article from Relevant, which I think is actually a couple of days old now. Um, I guess just one day old. It says no matter what happens. Christians must be peacemakers amidst election day unrest. So this was written yesterday, not knowing what today was even going to look like. Again, a lot of people presumed that we probably wouldn't know till mm-hmm. maybe Thursday, Friday. So I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people had a finger on that pulse. But uh, I just I found this perspective to be so helpful, even more so this morning, waking up still not knowing. And uh, I think I think this is a, a good challenge for all of us. So why, why don't you get us into this article? Yeah. And like you said, I I do think, especially as Christ followers, uh, because as you said, that's who this is towards. It says no matter what happens, Christian must be Christians must be peacemakers. Uh, I think it's going about to get crazy here, man. And and, uh, even last night at like two or three in the morning, um, President Trump, he he didn't tamp down. He didn't put out the flames. Right. He kind of ignited them a little bit more. And 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 I think there's a chance uh, if done poorly and if things break a certain way that this could get really contentious and really ugly. And the question is, what are we as church as the church? What are we as Christ followers going to do? And so the point of this article says, however, the nation needs peacemakers now more than ever and cannot afford to sit have us sit on the sidelines. So amid deep reservations, what can the church do leading up to and after the election to promote peace. And I would say during the uncertainty of not knowing, what can we do? And so number one, the author says, promote, quote, just peacemaking. One of the biggest responsibilities a child of God has right now is to be an agent of peace. The context we're facing now is hurt rooted in division over how America should move forward. This hurt is not only being felt as a nation, it's also being felt within church circles and communities as a result Many have cut off communication and engagement with those uh, who don't align with us politically. So therefore, according to the, quote, just peacemaking theory, 
one of the practices we could do more of to promote peace is undo the hurt we might have caused others. With political figures so polarizing, it's so easy for our friends and network to be offended that we support one candidate or the other. And so the point is that our role could be to to reach out to people that those that maybe we have hurt or have hurt us take those steps uh, to make peace, even right now, as there's very little peace going on. So that's number one. Yeah. The second challenge here is avoid the spread of misinformation writing. It feels like nothing is more quickly accessible than false information with social media being one of the biggest beneficiaries of our attention. It's easy to get caught up in the unintentional errors that are posted as well as any propaganda that is willfully distributed. Sharing and spreading posts filled with misinformation can lead to dangerous consequences that feed into partisan strategies that only widen the divide in society. Make it a point to fact check the sources you rely on and be slow to react when something seems counterproductive to society. You, you and I have been banging this drum for a while anyway, but I yeah, think absolutely. especially the call for the Christ follower, even if you find something to be funny, <laughs> it, yeah. it maybe actually is. I've seen so many people post things making a legitimate claim, but also trying to be funny. And then within 30 seconds, someone will comment and say, this has actually been debunked. This has been disproven. And they're like, ah, <laughs> still a funny meme. And you're like, okay, right. maybe, maybe right now isn't the ideal time to be spreading that kind of stuff just for, just for humor's sake. All that to say, fact check. I think it's really important. Yeah, we're we're about to enter. I'm say I'm guessing 48 to 72 hours here of one side or the other claiming this election got stolen from them, and there's going to sure. be lots of articles being posted, and we've got to be really careful. Well, number three, empathize with the fears of those whom you disagree with. The reality of the coming days is that one of the two major candidates will officially be declared winner, hopefully, <laughs> of this election, mm-hmm. while the other concedes. Whether it be Biden or Trump, half our nation will rejoice while the other half feels their world momentarily crumble. Beginning now, and for as long as we're on this side of eternity, we need to make it a personal commitment to listen, empathize, and dialogue with those who we disagree with. I think that one's really important, right? I think that we we just think, how can I empathize with those who think like I do? How can I comfort those who think like I do? And uh, instead, reaching across the aisle and going, hey, let me understand why you're so worked up and so hurt and so scared. I think uh, that's a that's a difficult one, but an important one. Yeah, I agree. Number four, pray for wisdom for our leaders. While some of our leaders might have lost the vision they initially had to serve others, they're still human beings that need divine wisdom to organize and facilitate the world that God has given us dominion over. Just as we're living in unprecedented times, our mayors, military, police officers, and civic authorities are leading in unprecedented times. Right now, they're facing situations that no amount of education, fundraising, or connections could have prepared them for, and it's our responsibility to devote ourselves and uplift our leaders in prayer. Jeremiah 29, 7 beautifully prophesies that if we pray to the Lord for the prosperity of our cities, he will hear us, and we too will prosper. The mysterious reality of prayer is that God desires to partner with us to see his will executed over society. No matter who our leader is, we have a duty as peacemakers to stand in the gap for our authority figures. Believe that no matter who is in power, it is God who is on the throne, and we have the remarkable task of interceding to see the will of the Lord fulfilled regardless of party lines. And the last one is this. Remember the only kingdom that will not fail. Nations of the world are in a state of unrest because humans are placing their trust in structures that are destined to fail. It's been this way throughout all of history, 
under both prosperous and oppressive regimes. Today in America, many might be trusting in a specific party or a specific candidate. Others might be wrestling with the distrust towards the media or are concerned with a distrust towards institutions. The unsurprising yet beautiful reality is that everyone will either fail or betray us except Jesus. Mm. Only Jesus has established a foolproof kingdom that we all become citizens of the moment we put our trust in. Amen. That is a word we need to hear this morning. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, I I think I put this in the rundown yesterday, thinking we might even know by this morning. And the fact that we don't, I think, makes this article all the more timely. Like always, that's up at our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. We would love to know what you think about that there. Coming up next, though, I'm I'm so excited for this guest. His name is David Koizis. He is a brilliant thinker, author, educator, and he wrote a wonderful book called Political Visions and Illusions. He'll be joining us for the next two segments here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we're thrilled to have back to the show the one and only David Koizas. Welcome back, sir. Oh, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. We are pleased to have you. And uh, to explain a bit of my excitement, would you just take a moment and uh, introduce yourself to our audience, whoever you like? Sure. Um, primarily, I'm, I'm the author of, of two books, um, one of which I think is especially relevant right now, Political Visions and Illusions. I taught undergraduate political science here in, in Canada for, uh, for 30 years, and, um, and I'm a global scholar with a wonderful organization called Global Scholars Canada. Hmm. And David, obviously, we're excited to have you on to talk about last night's election. Uh, I'm curious, just from a personal end, uh, did you sleep last night? What was it like for you as you were watching all of this take place last night? Well, I have to tell you to begin with, uh, because I was traveling in the States a couple of weeks ago, I came back to Canada and I'm now in two weeks of quarantine in our, in our, in our family room. So I'm, I'm sleeping on a fold out bed these days and not getting the best sleep. So I I sat in front of the television last night, feeling overwhelmingly sleepy and thinking, I have to stay up until I find out who who wins because I I pictured myself getting up this morning, getting on the air and, and with sleepy eyes saying, Okay, guys, who won? (laughs) (laughs) And of course, there's no answer to that right now, um, which I I rather suspected what would happen. Um, You know, so I I think the the uncertainty that we're seeing right now, I think a lot of us, um, it's not very surprising to us. Mm -hmm. Well, and uncertainty is certainly a topic I'd love to talk to you about, because I think it's it's part and parcel with a lot of the division that we're seeing. And Brian and I are, are both pastors, so we see... We see division maybe from a, a slightly different perspective, but it's certainly division nonetheless. Have you seen anything like this in recent memory? Um, not not to the same degree. Um, I, I, I remember the um, the election of 2000, which was also mm-hmm. another closely um, contested election. Uh, uh, and I, I, I remember the debates that um, that occurred in the the 2000 election between George W. Bush and Al Gore, and they were very gentlemanly, and and it seemed mm-hmm. to me that more often than not they they agreed with each other, simply disagreeing on the um, on the means to get to the goals on which they both uh, both agreed, and it was a very um, um, it it. Uh, it it wasn't a really polarizing election as far mm. as far as I could I could see. Uh, Twenty years later, that's that's certainly not the case, and it seems yeah. as though people have hardened into their um, 
into their respective um, factions, uh, which mm. which is not good for the long term health of uh, of of the United States. Yeah. Just in yeah. terms of when we're going to know who the next president, in your opinion, what's kind of the best case scenario for the next 48, 72 hours? And what's the worst case scenario uh, that we could be facing over, I don't know, next weeks, months? I'd have no idea. Well, the best case scenario is that uh, is that a decision is made. It's a clear decision and everybody agrees about it. Um, if, if, if Biden wins and everybody recognizes that, then there's a smooth transition uh, of power. Uh, the worst case scenario would, would take the United States in a direction which probably has not been seen for about, oh, maybe 220 years uh, with the election of, of Thomas Jefferson in the year 1800. Uh, and at that point, there had never really been a transition of power before. Uh, you know, partisanship was just beginning to develop at that at that point, and there were a lot of fears that if uh, if Jefferson came to office, then um, then there might be, I don't know, the worst worst sort of things might happen. In the worst case scenario, you would have disagreement. You would have possibly, if Biden ends up winning, Trump claiming that there was fraud and that mm-hmm. uh, and his followers go, would go along with him. Um, and I think that's a, that's a bit of a scary scenario. Because the democracy depends on there being general agreement on the uh, on, on the means on the on mm-hmm. the mechanisms of uh, of electoral politics. You mentioned a second ago uh, how hunkered down people tend to be in their camps more so now maybe than than we've seen in, in a long long time. And you mentioned that that potentially has detrimental effects to the the long term health of the United States. Can you talk to me a little more about that? Yes, yes. Um, the, I think what, what, what we really need to see is, is a, an overall commitment, and I think this, this existed for, for a couple of centuries, an overall commitment to the rule of law and to constitutional governance. In other words, there has to be loyalty to the system itself and the way that it functions and in its capacity to do justice. Um, if we start becoming cynical about the system as a whole, and I think this has been accelerating for the last um, maybe half a century since the 1960s at least, uh, then uh, people start to doubt as to whether the system really is doing justice, and then they start to become more loyal to their respective factions. Mm. And they believe that their factions are best able to do justice, and if other people on the other side do not agree with that, then too bad for them. But it's going to be make it more difficult for for people to sit down to be able to converse to talk out their differences rather than to yell at each other across barricades. Mm-hmm. Something that really struck me last night, like you, I I ended up going to bed, but like you, I was watching all the stuff coming in, and you know they've all got their maps and they're going county by county or, or whatever else. I was I don't I guess I never realized that essentially. Uh, all the rural areas, at least it seemed like last night, were red or Republican, and all the big cities were blue uh, yeah. in every state that they talked about. Has it always been that way? Is that kind of where our division lies, or is that kind of a newer phenomenon for us these days? I th- you know, I, I, there may be people that will disagree with me here, but I think it's it's probably a bit of a newer phenomenon, at least for the last um, uh, maybe 20 or 30 years. Uh, you know, I, I, I still remember, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the South was um, solidly democratic. Uh, you know, that started to change around 1948. It, it probably changed for good around 1968. Um, it was more of a regional division from the time of the 
the American Civil War for about 100 years after that. But it does seem as though there's a kind now there's kind of an urban-rural divide. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in the Chicago area, and um, I, I lived in DuPage County. And, of course, Cook County um, has always been solidly Democratic, uh, DuPage County solidly Republican. I'm not sure whether that's the case anymore because I think it may be that, that, that suburban areas and metropolitan areas are now leaning towards the Democrats as, as a whole. And mm-hmm. rural areas, and the red states, if you look at the map, the red states, with the exception of places like Texas and, um, and Florida, um, they tend to to uh, be dominated by um, by the rural parts of the of mm-hmm. the states, and I think that's that is something that um, um, yeah that 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 really stands out. Yeah. David, you're kind enough to join us for another segment where we're going to drill down a little deeper into some of what you're talking about here. But I'd love for the last minute or so we have in this segment. I know a lot of people felt maybe the same way that you did. They expected to be able to wake up today and at least have some clarity and a lot of a lot of it just feels unsure people are maybe feeling anxious right now could you just speak a, a word of encouragement or hope uh, amidst sort of a bizarrely uncertain week yes well i i i I can understand people feeling anxious. Um, I feel anxious to to some degree. Of course, my quarantine has something to do with that. But <laughs> right. uh, but I I would say that our our ultimate hope is not in the uh, smooth functioning of political systems. Uh, by God's grace, uh, we have lived in countries that are smoothly functioning for the most part. But no system is perfect, and and uh, um, the American system is not perfect. The the founders put together a very a very good system but it really takes the american people to make it work and that's something i think we need to uh, we need to focus on now that's such a good word david you retweeted uh timothy keller a couple of days ago and he actually references you in this tweet and it's a it's an idea that i've seen a number of pastors and theologians writing about as of late and he talks about denying that the way of jesus is sort of this middle-of-the-road centrism, and he says the gospel critiques all ideologies and all the main political platforms since the Enlightenment have been dominated by reductionism and idols. Can you tell me a little bit more about maybe what he means by that and whether or not you see that to be true? Right. Um, you know, the idea of centrism is something that goes back to Aristotle, um, right. who thought that, that virtue was the, the mean between vicious extremes. You know, so courage is the mean between recklessness on the, on the one hand and cowardice on the other. You know, and, and, um, and there have been a lot of people who have tried to uh, synthesize that with a biblical understanding of, of obedience and what it means to be uh, 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 an obedient image bearer of, of God. Um, I think what Keller is trying to say, and I would agree with him 100%, is that, is that centrism is not really the, the way to go. You know, if, if there are two idol, idols that are contesting for dominance over the, over the public realm, then um, uh, the, the wise way is not to find a kind of median between these two idols because you're still in the realm of idolatry. So it's uh, uh, you know if if you if you take the ideologies that are contesting for uh, supremacy within the public realm now, and if you say well we'll take a little bit of this idol and a little bit of that, it's like taking Baal and Dagon mm-hmm. and Isis and um, <laughs> Jupiter and Zeus and and saying okay we'll have a little bit and we'll we'll just be very moderate in our, moderate in our use of these idols. Uh, I, I don't think that's that's the way to go, and I think Keller is uh, understands that, and that's certainly what I what I argue in my book. 
Mm-hmm. In other words, the the Christian way is not is not the middle way. I think it's uh, it's 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 the true way. And I know that can sound cheap. Um, you know, it may sound too easy. The, the the true way is something that we need to to work out. We need to um, uh, to be very careful. Uh, the ideologies have slogans that we can throw at things: uh, bread and peace, uh, um, uh, liberty, uh, fr- equality, fraternity, as the, the mm. French revolutionaries uh, uh, had their slogan. Um, I think the the way, and of course, that's what Christianity was called. If you read in the Book of Acts, uh, the first Christians were said to follow the way, uh, with a with a capital W. Uh, the way is 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 very distinctive, and it's not something that lends itself to easy slogans. Uh, perhaps Jesus is Lord. That that's Ooh. the slogan that we would adopt. It doesn't tell us much about how we approach the political realm, but that's something that we need to sit down, and we need to sit down with our neighbors, even those who are not believers, and to try to work out what it means to do justice, to do public justice in the public realm. Hmm. David, we we talked so much about the church, even like our culture being divided politically right now. I, a really difficult question, but how do we how do we turn this around as the church? How do we do better at that? Do you have any thoughts as to, you know, a way forward so that we uh, kind of turn the tide here a little bit within the church? Well, if you're talking about the church as a specific institution, the the, the where, where the the word is preached, uh, the sacraments are celebrated, um, which exercises discipline within the uh, the context of the of the membership, then I think what the church needs to do is to is to to focus on the implications of living obediently in the whole of life. So sometimes we think that um, that living biblically is about going to church on Sundays. It's about um, uh, being nice to your neighbors and to uh, being nice to your family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's a whole world out there. Uh, God has has uh, placed us at the center, at the summit of His creation, as as the eighth Psalm puts it. Uh, the, that we are, we are 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 given a stewardship over the rest of God's creation, and, and we need to work out the implications of that. Uh, but we first have to insert ourselves. We have to to live within the biblical redemptive narrative and to find our place within the biblical uh, story of salvation. And again, it, we're not going to have easy slogans that we can throw at problems, but we need to sit down and work things out, but always as Christians, not as people who have divided loyalties. Hmm. I wonder if your answer might be the same to this question, but one of the things that mostly off air, Brian and I, and again, this is part of being a pastor, is we're having to navigate conversations of people within our own church who are very, very right or very, very left or very, very neither, very confused, very um, apathetic or, you know, a whole gamut of emotions. What counsel or advice or insight would you give to to someone who, let's say it's not until Friday, but their candidate loses? As a Christ Mm -hmm. follower, what can or should the response be when we find out that our candidate lost? Um, well, uh, when I, when I was a child and if I was playing a game that I happened to lose, my, my parents would talk about being a, a good loser. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and maybe there's something to be said for that for adults as well in, in, in the political realm. Uh, you know, whoever ends up winning the, the presidency, uh, there are going to be, um, difficult issues to deal with. And there are going to be considerable flaws that each candidate will bring to, to, the public office which they which they hold and to to recognize that it's not the end of the world 
uh, to recognize that, um, that that whichever candidate wins, there there will be considerable uh, um, disadvantages for for many people. Uh, neither candidate, I think, is is a perfect exemplar of justice, mm-hmm. and I think that's what we have to recognize. We can pray that their um, that their uh, um, that their good qualities will outweigh their their bad qualities. And uh, and then we need to work ourselves to try to um, to try to be good citizens, uh, especially in our own local communities where we can really make an, an impact. Mm-hmm. Let, let me uh, let you put on your political pundit hat here. So okay. uh, as we're watching, you you said you've been watching all of the maps and everything. Yes. What should we be watching for? What, what are you watching for? If this happens, then uh, Biden's going to win. If this happens, then Trump's going to win. What are a couple of things we could be watching for over the next 48, 72 hours? Well, I think we I think we need to watch the um, the marginal states, the states that are are sitting on the fence at the present time. I have a map in front of me right now. I love maps. I absolutely love maps. I mean, <laughs> I look at maps, and that's sort of how I think. You know, I, yeah. I I see things in maps that I wouldn't if I just saw the statistics laid out in in front of me. And and what I'm looking at right now is is uh, I guess Wisconsin, Michigan, um, Nevada. And um, Arizona that are leaning leaning towards Biden. I see Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Georgia that are lead, lead and and Alaska that are leaning towards um, towards Trump. You know, mm-hmm. so so I guess if 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 we're gonna if I'm gonna believe Reuters and and perhaps I'd see a similar map on other um, media sites mm-hmm. as as well to watch those states and see how see how they go. Mm-hmm. That's a good word. Our guest today has been David Koizis. He is a fellow in politics at the St. George Center for Biblical and Public Theology. He's also the author of a wonderful book, uh, Political Visions and Illusions. I cannot encourage you enough to pick that up, read it, especially in times right now. David, you are such a joy to have on the show and such a breath of fresh air. Thank you for making the time to join us today. Uh, Oh, you're very welcome. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. We appreciate it very much. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. How, how are you guys doing today? We, we sometimes, that's probably a worthwhile, maybe even pause to ask yourself, how am I doing? The world seems crazy right now and you would be right. So we did want to recognize that and it feels like, what percentage, Brian, of our shows the last eight months have been either political or COVID related? What would you guess? Yeah, 85%. It feels like a lot. And uh, but it's all that we can think about these days, right? It's all it it has such it's kind of affects everything else too. even when we talk about how are you leading your church right now, other things like that, it is always through the lens of the election and COVID. So yeah, every once in a while, and I we almost sometimes have to be extra intentional about, you know, selecting articles or topics or angles that don't have to do with either the election or COVID because it feels like, I mean, Brian and I are like, you know, like anybody else, our newsfeed is probably filled with the same type of stuff that yours is. So um, one of the things that I have appreciated and Kerry Newhoff is someone who I don't know how he has time to sleep. It feels like he's cranking out like (laughs) killer content all the time. And he writes books and he's got a podcast and he's leading a church and he's got like these, different leadership tracks, like these courses, these cohorts that he leads, it's, it's bonkers. And I, there's a part of me, honestly, Brian, that every time there's a new one, I read it like expecting this one to stink. I'm like, surely he's going to have a stinker. <laughs> and every time I'm like, gosh, darn it. Carrie Newhoff. That is 
good and timely. So he wrote, uh, this is just a, a few days ago. He wrote, he writes on leadership a lot, but he says uh, the headline is five normal things that are a total waste of time in leadership. And I don't know if somebody writes his headlines. Am I showing my cards? I'm kind of jealous of just like how how good he right. is at you're, this you're whole clicking game. on that, right? Oh. You're clicking on you that. You are. I don't know why. It's like, oh, that's a that's a headline that just and maybe that doesn't apply to everybody. Totally understandable. But I read through these and I think, oh, these don't just apply to leaders or pastors. But I, I just found them to be really helpful. Do you want to uh, get mm-hmm. us into it? Yeah. Again, like you said, these are uh, it gets you to click on it because you're like, well, what are the normal things I'm doing that are wasting my time? Number one is worry. Uh, He says so many legal leaders struggle with worry. It's almost wholly unproductive. It's understandable that leaders have a lot that they can worry about. As I've told my team many times, our job is basically to help solve the problems nobody else has been able to solve. That's why you're a leader. Consequently, leadership can be a breeding ground for worry but you should do everything in your power to eliminate it. There's a world of difference between thinking about a problem and worrying about a problem. Uh, Thinking about a problem will lead you to a solution. Worrying about a problem leads you nowhere. Plus, most of what you worry about will never transpire. As 16th century French philosopher Michel de Matagna, there you go, put it, my life has been full of terrible misfortunes and most of which has never happened. So the first thing he says, so to beat worry, focus on what you know is true, not what you feel is true. Number two, I'm wondering where Brian Fromm lands on this spectrum. Meeting with someone who doesn't need to meet with you. He starts by saying, when someone asks you to meet with you, My guess is your default is to say yes. So is mine. But play that out. As your church or organization grows, that means you would spend all week, every week, meeting with people, many of whom don't really need to meet at all, and most of whom don't need to meet with you in particular. Deciding who you need to meet with in advance helps. My priorities are, in order, our senior staff leaders, our elders, our staff team, and a few key people beyond that. That's it. Most leaders waste time meeting with people who don't need to meet with them. Do I meet with other people? Yes, but only after those key people have uh, the time they need and after my other priorities are done, which means I do say no a lot. I still hate that, but it's necessary. He actually outlines this in another blog that he uh, wrote earlier. While it may sound harsh, it's liberating and you will get more done. Plus, your church or organization will be positioned to grow as a result. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to know where where you land on that, that spectrum, Brian. Yeah, I probably shouldn't say. <laughs> I rarely say no. And I do. I am part of a smaller church, but that doesn't excuse us. I, since the day we started the church, I rarely say no to anybody even. And I know that's a problem. Like at, at best, what I'll say is like, hey, can we do it in a week? Uh, hmm. But yeah, I, I struggle punt, to say punt, no to That's your move. Yeah, yeah. But I will, that meeting will usually end up happening. So I guess. Uh, but yeah, that's convicting because he's not wrong. He he is not wrong about what he's saying there. Number three, over managing things that don't need managing. The startup phase is wonderful and crazy in any venture. When you're starting up, everything happens in a frenzy and making it to your next weekend or next milestone is itself a victory. You don't have time to manage well because you're busy creating. But eventually, every organization gets out of a startup phase, which means you have more time for managing. But too many leaders end up not just managing, but over-managing. Great management adds value. Over-managing sucks value and life out of an organization. You know those dead-end meetings where you spent forever talking about something (laughs) that truly deserved five minutes? 
Oh, man, <laughs> this is a tough one. That's over managing. Stop that. If you manage something in five minutes, ma- five minutes, manage it in five minutes, not 50 minutes. <laughs> what should you do with the rest of your time? Create something new that will lead your church or organization to the next opportunity. Start leading. Stop managing that will ma- uh, things that will manage themselves. Over management is one of the reasons so many organizations plateau. Mm. Leadership builds something new. Management organizes what we've what you've already built. So build something new. Yeah, this is a tough one for me. All right, here's one that <laughs> might uh, strike a nerve for some people. Uh, yeah. Inefficient email. Email is the currency of business communication today. Spend as little of this currency as you can. It's amazing how many hours each day disappear answering mostly pointless emails. You know, this is maybe the harshest I've heard Kerry Newhoff be in quite some time, and he's Canadian. Uh, <laughs> how do you know email is mostly pointless, you ask? Great question. Think about the last time you went on vacation and put your autoresponder on. Yes, there were X hundred emails waiting for you when you got back, but after attacking your inbox for an hour, you realized you only needed to reply to about 10 to 20% of them. True, the world moved on without you. Why not make that dynamic a reality every day? Here are some tips to make your email less of a waste of time. Eliminate reply alls unless absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. Skim read and only reply if you're adding value to the conversation. Move conversations to face-to-face meetings. Instead of answering 90 emails on a subject, you can clarify the issue in about nine minutes in a meeting. Answer long emails with short replies. This almost always brings an out-of-control conversation back into line. Nobody gets points in heaven for saying, I answered emails all day long. Let the truly mission-advancing emails get your attention. Minimize everything else. That's a good, that's a that's good, good word, man. I, I always am jealous of people and admire people who are like, I'm going to answer email for an hour and then close down my email. What kills yeah. me is I just have my email up and then it's just all day long. Oh, that is a killer, man. Number five, working when you're exhausted. A lot of us have more control over our lives than we realize. If you work in an office setting that doesn't have fixed hours, exert some control over your workflow. When Mm. you're exhausted, take a nap, go for a walk, go home, call it a day. Sure, once in a while you need to push yourself well past your personal reserves, but too many leaders try to do this every day. They Mm. show up exhausted, they work exhausted, and they go home exhausted. Stop that. Why? Your brain doesn't even work properly when you're exhausted. What took you three hours to do at 7 p.m. might actually take you 30 minutes at 7 a.m. after you wake up from eight hours of sleep. Hmm. That problem you couldn't figure out all day yesterday finally solved itself in your mind when you went for a walk or took a bike ride. The next time you find yourself staring at a blank screen, walk away and come back when you're fresh. A key ingredient in all this is sleep. Remember this, a rested you is a better you. Don't just show up to work. Bring your best to work. In great organization, no one gets paid for showing up. That's good. Kerry Newhoff went off in this one, man. This was a convicting one for sure. This is really good, too. And I and I wanted to include this one because it was just highly practical. You know, I feel like so yeah. much of what we're talking about now uh, is in like these big, broad strokes or like super nebulous, ethereal subject matter. And I read this and I was like, oh, man, I feel convicted to just handle email differently either way i know that you know this may not work for everyone's personality style or their you know their work setting but i'd love to know what you think what would you add what tips or tricks have you learned along the way that have actually made you be a much better leader to stop wasting time and maybe some of the areas that he outlines and uh, for brian Fromm, my name is ian simpkins you've been listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about isolation, civility, and how we heal. You're listening to The Common Good. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you're here. I say that slow because I know that some people are listening at twice the speed, and I want to make sure they know <laughs> how much we appreciate. We were just talking off air, too, like what a bizarre year it's been, which is not oh a hot take. We realize everyone's talking about how weird a year it's been, but I feel particularly humbled, though, that we've been able to do a show through a year like this. Like, can you imagine? Did you, in any universe, two years ago when we started the show, imagine that we'd be doing a show during a year like this? Was that even on your radar? No, it's just so crazy. And we say this often, but in case people don't realize, since the middle of March, you and I have been at our homes doing this show with the, and we're thankful for the technology. But even today on my Facebook memories, right, it popped up uh, doing a show with somebody where you and I would always take a picture with them in the studio. And I was like, that feels forever uh-huh. ago. Life Wild. is, it, John was asking as our producer, like, does it feel like this year has gone fast? And it's like, it doesn't feel fast or slow. It just feels like everything's just so different. So it's helped to do a show through it to kind of stay engaged. But man, is everything so crazy right now? Well, and not just the the engaged part. You know, part of what I was saying during the break, too, is that like sometimes we need to do an article on what we can learn from cats. You know, just to, <laughs> just to yes. like take a break from what, you know, everything else seems to be pointed towards. But I also feel very grateful that we've been able to I mean, we're pastors and you know, part of the reason that we became pastors was a love for God and people. And it feels like in a lot of ways, this has been an opportunity to hopefully help people think through some things or to offer some encouragement or a challenge where we need it. And if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you've probably heard us mention the name David French. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar with the name David French, I highly encourage you just to go Google him, learn more about him, uh, regardless of your political theological alignment. Like, I just think he's a he's a sharp needed voice right now. And on November 1st, actually, he wrote an article called How We Heal. And I intentionally wanted to choose some articles from, you know, a couple of days before the election, because I think the perspective of men and women like this, before we even know what the results are going to be, is so needed and so helpful. And we're not going to have time to get to all of it. But I just thought this was a, a timely read. So I'd love for Brian Fromm for you to get us into it. Yeah. And like you said, it's timely because especially now that and he didn't know this when he wrote this, but our election is not decided yet. It's going to get even more contentious. I think we're going to be uh, people who bring about healing or people who bring about division. And so I think uh, this becomes very important. As you said, French uh, at French Press, you love the name of his blog, said Mm -hmm, this. mm -hmm. There's a saying that comes that's common in the online world. We'll watch someone have a very public meltdown or exhibit brazen hypocrisy and critics will sneer. Trump broke him. It's a mocking way of saying that their anger got the best of them or that their anxiety turned them into seemingly public panic. A mainly partisan segment of the public seems to enjoy these spectacles. They like watching people fail. And make no mistake, the evidence of failure abounds. People are, in fact, breaking. They are breaking all around us. The longer I live, the more I realize that we simply don't know who we truly are until we're tested. We can vocalize our beliefs all day long. But when living those beliefs is hard, when upholding our principles carries a cost, that's when we learn what we truly value. Soldiers are familiar with this concept. There's an old war movie trope of the soldier who brags about his bravery and then fails in combat while the quiet, humble man demonstrates steel in his spine. But the trope is based in some truth. There is, in fact, often a gap between a man's rhetoric in his barracks and the reality of his actions under fire. If a person believes himself or herself to be brave until the bravery is tested, there is but one accurate response. We'll see. 
Other examples abound. How many millions of couples have sworn fidelity to each other only to see that commitment crumble in the face of marital conflict or simple Mm. direct temptation? If a person believes himself or herself to be faithful until that fidelity is tested, there is but one accurate response. We'll see. We could do this with every virtue. virtue. Are we truthful? We'll see. Are we kind? We'll see. Easy Mm. virtue is hardly virtue at all. As C.S. Lewis wrote in Screwtape Letters, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. If I had to summarize the last four years in a single phrase, it would be simple. It's been a time of testing. Mm. This time of testing has broken us and divided us. It's divided us between those who are honest and those who lie, the cruel and the kind, the principled and the hypocrites between the courageous and the cowardly. And make no mistake, this is not a matter of left and right or of Trump and anti-Trump. He says, I've opposed Trump since the start, but I don't think for a moment that the hashtag resistance has cornered the market on virtue. The stress and rage of the last four years has ruined lives and wrecked reputations on all sides of the political aisle. In fact, there are more. there are ways in which the principal sins of the last four years are partisan mirror images of one another. He goes on to say, I've seen conservative Christians commit grievous sins in the pursuit of virtuous causes, and I've seen their opponents engage in terrible wrongs to defeat an an unfit and cruel man, in their opinion. Not every person has failed every test, of course, as we've learned who people really are, as their values have been put to extreme tests. There are these are those who've withstood the storm. So I'll stop there for a second. I love how he how he sets this up. The fact that in the kind of the pressure cooker of what these last four years and I would say the coming weeks are going to be, it doesn't form virtue. It reveals it. It reveals who we truly are. And I think a lot of us, you could I'm sure speak to this as well. We've there's people that we've gained greater respect for uh, through how Mm -hmm. they've been and how they've navigated this kind of world that we live in. And if we're honest, there are people that we've lost a lot of respect for because who they've shown to be uh, in these last months and years. Yeah, he gives an example from his book, which, by the way, if you've not read it, uh, read Divided We Fall, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, it's the fact that he's putting out content like this in blog form is <laughs> incredible. So it shouldn't be a surprise to me that his book is also wonderful, but high, highly recommended. He talks about the uh, the story of Elijah, and I, I love that he mentions it, too, because um, – I haven't heard a whole lot of sermons about this particular perspective because Elijah has some other uh, aspects of his story that are way easy to sermonize. But he talks about this encounter where he declares himself to be the only one left in service to the Lord, but then God contradicts him. And I just I love that exchange because Elijah's being a little emo. He's like, I'm the only one. And God's like, whoa, 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 calm down. So (laughs) David's talking about this word remnant. And he, you know, expresses his jealousy that his buddy thought of that as a podcast name. He likes the idea of remnant and he talks about why. But then he goes on to say that the critical truth is that as a nation or a a church that heals not through the virtue of that remnant, as admirable as it may be, the remnant might represent a foundation, but the repentant truly powered the church. That's how our church heals. That's how our nation heals. Not so much by exalting the righteous and giving them their due, but by embracing the repentant and forgiving them with joy that mm. i love that that's the crux of the whole article like that's where he's yeah. going, the question of how we heal you know and, and we've talked about this before the word repent is the word metanoia which simply means to turn around and to, to your point brian to turn around from the ways the division that maybe we've stirred uh dissension um apathy anger any of those things like that to me is such a powerful call 
from someone who's not a pastor saying this is this is the way forward. This is how we heal. Yeah. And he goes on to say later, but repentance carries with it a corresponding obligation, forgiveness and membership in the remnant can carry with it the temptation of self-righteousness. And then he goes on mm. to talk about the prodigal son story. Uh, man, you know, Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry was calling us to repentance. And like you said, it's a it's a theme running throughout the Bible. And uh, I would say self-righteousness is a big virtue these days. But but will the church, like you said, repent of where we've been wrong, forgive our brothers and sisters as they repent? I think it's going to be a true test. And I think he's so right here to say that's what brings healing, repentance, forgiveness. That's where healing begins. Mm, I, I like how he ends, too. I just <laughs> I enjoy his writing because he's got like uh, one more thing and yeah. then one last thing section. And then he at the end of the article, he uh, references the Zach Williams song either way. I think that's a powerful way to end an article too. Like, hey, you might think that uh, my whole premise is way off. Uh, listen to this song and the profound truth that it demonstrates. I'm just like, oh, brilliant. I just, I just love that idea. Either way, that's up on our Facebook page, and uh, we would love to know what you think there. Coming up next, how solitude and isolation can affect your social skills. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. So Oh, hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian James Fromm. Is that right? I haven't done that, that is, in a while. That it was impressive right there. That is correct. Yes, it is. Thanks Thanks for keeping a, a low bar of uh, what's <laughs> impressive. <laughs> and I would remember the middle name of my co-host that I've been doing a show with for two years. I, I, yeah, I like that. Impressive. Let's keep, let's keep that word. Um, oh, we haven't done holidays yet, have we? And boy, oh, boy. We need holidays today. One of these in particular, Brian, is so ironic. It's so perfect. So here, I'm going to give you three. Well, maybe four. Oh, gosh. I have so many jokes I want to make that I'm stumbling over my words, and I know that you don't know what they are. So first off, uh, it's National Chicken Lady Day. I don't know what that is. Uh, National Candy Day, which is appropriate. Um, It's Unity Day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but not here though it's in the country of russia which oh, no. <laughs> no 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 comment left um, with no, left without comment or, <laughs> or commentary but the one that i find more ironic than alanis could ever hope for is national stress awareness day um <laughs> legitimately today is national stress awareness and people are like yes I am aware of my stress. Thank you. Oh, that's uh, funny. I, just, I saw that and thought, no way. There's it's both that. it's both National Unity Day in Russia and National Stress. Okay, <laughs> yes, those are those are apropos of our current situation oh, for sure. Oh my goodness! Either way, legitimately though, if if you are feeling stressed, like take a breather, close the laptop, meditate and pray. Yeah. Like the, I go do for really. A walk. It's beautiful out today. Go for, go a, walk, for a walk. Right, we, we have an unprecedented week right now. With regards to weather, enjoy it as best you can. And uh, yeah, that's a good idea. So it is kind of loosely connected. I was trying to think of the right segment to bring that up. I found this article over at BBC.com. It says humans are deeply social creatures. So what happens when we're alone for a long time? And it's about how solitude and isolation can affect our social skills. I think a lot of us are aware that it does affect our social skills, but maybe we don't know much past that. I think most people would agree like, man, this prolonged isolation or quarantine, that's going to have some kind of effects. And maybe maybe a lot of us aren't thinking about any of the long-term effects. Maybe more we're thinking like, oh, I just miss my friends or I miss being at the office. Uh, this article is pretty fascinating because it's going to make a case for some of how it's sort of shaping us and maybe how it might be shaping us long-term. Do you want to get us into it? Yeah, it starts with a story of a guy by the name of Neil Ansel. Fascinating story in the 1980s. 
Uh, he got a cottage for only $130 per year, but it came with a, uh, a, a trade-off of extreme isolation. Uh, he lived on a hill farm inhabited by a single elderly tenant miles from the nearest village. He didn't have a phone, and in five years, uh, not a single person walked by the house. Uh, so it goes on to say, by the time he returned to civilization, Ansel had fully adapted to being on his own, and the social world was a bit of a shock. So fast forward to 2020, and Ansel's experiences might resonate more widely than they once would have. With lockdown, shielding, and self-isolating, many of us have spent much more time in our own company. How does long-term isolation affect the brain? Do we need social practice? And will we even remember how to socialize when things return to normal? Those are such important questions. Mm -hmm. It says, human beings are deeply social creatures. This is abundantly obvious from the way we live. It turns out there's a link between the size of a primate's brain and the size of communities it is able to form. The bigger the brain, the greater the extent of its social world. With our generously proportioned organs, humans form the largest groups of any primate, containing an average of 150 individuals. Right. Uh, as it turns out, uh, it says, as it turns out, uh, that it crops up rather a lot from the optimal upper limit for a church congregation to the average size of social networks on Twitter. That's called the Dunbar number. Uh, one explanation is that socializing is a mental workout to successfully navigate an interaction with another human being. You need to keep in mind a surprisingly large amount of information. So this is why we keep that number of group. In the end, the number of relationships we can maintain is limited by the amount of processing power we have available. And over millions of years, species with more social context tend to evolve larger their brains. It turns out this link works the other way around too. In the short term, a lack of socializing can make them shrink. Pause here. You're Mr. Brain Science guy. Mr. Brain Science pastor. That's what we're calling you. Uh, Gosh, I wish. This is pretty fascinating that that the it's essentially saying that the longer time we go isolating and not mm -hmm. socializing, the then harder it becomes uh, even physiologically to begin socializing again, that we kind of not only become out of practice, uh, but our brain shrinks and that makes it harder. I, this is craziness. Yeah, they actually. So last year, German scientists discovered that the brains of nine polar explorers who lived in an Antarctica for 14 months at a research station were smaller by the end of the trip. By looking at MRI scans taken before and afterwards, they found that on average, the dentate gyrus, a C-shaped region which is mostly involved in the formation of new memories, was diminished by about 7% over the course of the expedition. As a quick aside, I actually remember maybe 15 years ago reading about, I think it's this same research station where they would uh, invite people, even if you had zero scientific background just to man the station for six months and they would they would pay you just like an insane stipend or whatever but the problem was you would be in total darkness for the entire six months and total darkness the, yeah and the second oh, one i was listening goodness. to was interviewing people like how much harder that was than they thought it would be to be in isolation and to be in total darkness for six months and even you know at like 23 or 24 i was like ah, how hard could that be the older that i get and the longer we're in quarantine i'm like hmm <laughs> I can see that really wearing on you. But yeah, it's not just about like the brain size you're sort of given at birth. There actually is neurological effects uh, when we're when we're isolated for long periods of time, which raises all sorts of other questions about uh, our prison system, which we're not going to get to. But I, yeah, I, I, I find this particular premise super fascinating.
Yeah, and the article is going to go on to do something interesting. It's going to say psychologists aren't concerned with exactly how many people you have access to. Instead, most research focuses on how you view your situation. And so it's going to talk about the difference between loneliness and solitude. Because solitude involves, they say, being alone without being lonely. It's a contented state. Loneliness is a very different beast in which a person feels isolated and craves more social contact. And I think that is a huge difference to make there because I know – as I talk to people, people in church and other places, uh, I think through, since the pandemic began, uh, there's a lot of lonely people. There are a lot uh-huh. of people going, I feel lonely because I've been kind of into forced solitude, whether it be because of government regulations or it be because of health issues around COVID and whatever else. And I think there's just uh, loneliness out there in so many people uh, of which we don't know what the results are going to be. We don't know going forward what the results of this is going to be. But I, I appreciate that difference they strike between solitude, which is kind of this contented alone time versus loneliness of like, no, I want to be around people, but I just can't or I'm not right now. Yeah, I know that we're running out of time, but let me just read a little more. It says research has shown that even when lonely people do have the opportunity to socialize, the feeling warps their perception of what's going on. Ironically, this means that while it increases their yearning for social contact, it also impairs their ability to interact with others normally. Does that make sense? Yeah. The yeah. isolation, the feeling of loneliness increases your desire for social connection and mm. impairs your ability to do it well. For example, people who feel isolated tend to have a heightened awareness of social threats, such as saying the wrong thing. They can easily fall into the trap of confirmation bias in which they actively interpret the actions or words of others in a way that supports their negative outlook of their own status or social ability by having low expectations of others and viewing of themselves unfairly. They effectively invite people to treat them badly. There's a whole lot more like that in this article. It's uh, quite long, but super insightful. I would, I mean, it goes in to talk about kids. This to me, I, we could have done two segments on this one, but I'm also realizing that I probably yeah. geek out on this more than uh, <laughs> what is healthy. But either way, I think just from a, a neurological, physiological perspective, this is this is worth a read because it's it's helpful to know the ways that we're being shaped. That's right. That we might not be aware of. There's more obvious ones, and there's you know obvious litmus tests like how we engage on social media. But the I don't know this perspective. I think is just super helpful and something that I think. I think we would all do well to at least take a quick pause. Like, okay, how, how am I actually doing in this space? Because I think, I think it's important. Coming up next, there's an article out of uh, the Gospel Coalition. Again, written a couple of weeks ago. I wanted to intentionally choose some articles that were uh, a little bit before the election. And it's called The Case for Civility. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. For some of us, today might as well be National Coffee Day. I'd be curious to know how many people stayed up longer than they're happy with. Like, What what percentage of people today were like, I should have gotten to bed earlier than I did? What would you guess? Yeah. Uh, that percentage is very high right now, especially because there was no finality last night. So I don't think people even knew when to go to bed. Like, right. oh, when's it going to happen? Uh, I would guess there's a lot of tired people out there, a lot of people who stayed up way later than they planned on. I am proud to say I am not one of them. I got a mm-hmm. nice night's sleep last night. <laughs> people might be curious why we're talking about sleep right now because, like, oh, it's after 5 p.m. Well, 
A quick reminder, if you missed it at the beginning of the show, because of some scheduling stuff, Brian and I are recording in the mornings this week. So there might be some things that we say, particularly with regards to the election, that things quite possibly have changed throughout the day. So uh, give us some grace there because that is what is going on. But here's the thing. I wanted to reference some articles and ideas and perspectives that I felt like were were pretty evergreen, at least for the day. Like these things aren't going to change based on when we're recording and when they go live. But uh, out of Gospel Coalition, Samuel James on October 20th wrote an article called The Case for Civility. This is something that you and I have danced around a good deal. And I think as Christ followers, we, we should be, we should be concerned about it. I think to a degree that maybe we haven't, we haven't been. Cause I, I do find that sometimes civility in some circles is almost seen as weakness. Like, no, mm-hmm. don't, don't, now is not a time to be civil. Now is a time to, you know, flip cars over whatever. Like I, which there's a strong part of me that gets that. Like, yeah. Uh, out, outrage at times is appropriate. We should look at certain things and and feel anger toward them, toward injustice, towards exploitation, all that stuff. Um, so I found this article to be refreshing and uh, a timely word. So why don't you uh, get us into it? Yeah, and who we had on yesterday, Jim Dennison. He wrote a book called Respectfully, I Disagree. Uh-huh, and the whole right. premise of the book is the need, not just the need, but the desire. Most people in polls say, they have a desire for greater civility, but yet we have a culture that's kind of becoming less civil, which is is really fascinating. Uh, he talks about being a part of a church, does this article, and it says, belonging to a church for more than 10 years affords an opportunity that is scarce in contemporary American life, an opportunity to form and watch truly, quote, thick social ties. In fact, the local church is arguably one of the few public institutions where thick social ties can be seen. As countless cultural critics have observed, ours is an age of uh, atomization, splintering, uh, and hyper-individualism. We're, quote, lonely together while we bowl alone in a fractured republic. Most observers agree that the trends are troubling, and he's going to get into the troubling. So how do we answer the question? He says, one possibility I would submit is that we've given up on something fundamental to genuine membership, civility. What if digital technologies and upward mobility have displaced and isolated us because we find their moral demands on our relationships much easier than the demands of true civility? What if the path to a more humane, more real, and spiritually healthier culture is the path towards self-denying, other-preferring prefer- other practices of Christian civility? So he's going he's gonna to argue that civility is, is kind of the answer to this fracturing that so many of us feel. Uh, and and uh, I think it's an interesting take. So he says, is civility a trick? It's been troubling to me to witness, he says, the spectacle of journalists on social media announcing that, quote, civility is a deceptive moral equivo- equivocation that no one should bother trying. Uh, denigrating civility is the new intellectual fashion, evidenced both by its growing chorus of critics and also by an increasingly uncivil political culture. Civility, some suggest, is just a way for powerful people to preserve the status quo. Those babbling about civility are really tone policing while using terms like respect and free inquiry to hold on to power or comfortable status quo. Thus, the argument goes, we don't need civility. We need people brave enough to do the moral thing and brave enough to damn anyone who questions how they do it. <laughs> so let's stop there. You touched on that, right? There's yep. times to be uncivil. Uh, but let me ask you two questions. Maybe we should have done this in the beginning. How would you kind of define civility? 
Uh, and and do you think his argument holds weight or Jim Dennison yesterday, who we talked to, that civility is one of the keys to healing what's going on in our culture right now? Uh, yeah, I, that's a good question, because I feel like in some circles, civility is like no more than politeness, you know, um, yep. but I. I, I think it's more than that. I actually don't know if it's more than that for me. I, I don't want to get into like, well, for me, civility means, cause that's not really how definitions right. work. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think it means this. You're like, well, I'm glad that you think that Ian, but you are incorrect. <laughs> I, I, I think civility, it has more, it's more than just simply like cordiality though. Does that make sense? Yes. Like cordiality is like, I don't have to care about you or, what you're about or what this interaction points to. I'm just going to, I'm going to grit my teeth and just behave like an adult around. You. Like it's, it feels synonymous sometimes with like etiquette. Like I don't actually like any of you or this meal, but I know I'm supposed to use this fork and then wait for coffee at the, you know what I mean? Like there's a, it's, it can feel kind of empty in that regard. I think civility is a little, a little more than that. Maybe not a whole lot more. I think, the call on Christ followers is more than just to be civil to one another. You know, the word to love even our enemies. That to me is a hot, that's a higher aim than even just tolerance. But civility, I think to some degree is the willingness to engage in potentially heated discussions, heated, even disagreements um, while still honoring to some degree, the person with whom you disagree. Like that's part of what I think he's getting at here in the article because it's become so fashionable to critique civility because it do, it either can appear as if you don't care about the, the position you're holding or you don't think that the position the other person holding is all that bad or that none of this really matters to you. Um, therefore, you, it's kind of like what we talked about yesterday with some of the outrage porn. Like some of us are almost like addicted to things that trip our trigger that like right. make our blood boil, which – some people are doing the opposite. They're like, I don't want to read anything that upsets me at all ever. You're like, well, that's not healthy either. Um, but I think it's a, I think it's a dance. I, I do think, and again, this is like the prime example and Jesus doesn't do a whole lot of it, but he does sometimes flip over tables. He does sometimes call religious people a brood of vipers. That's not maybe totally civil. So at the very least, Jesus does model for us. I think in some cases that yeah, civility quite possibly isn't the highest aim all the time, but it feels like it's in short supply right now for sure. Yeah. I, I what I really appreciate is this concept in the article that he talks about thick community. Uh, it He defines it later. He says a thick community means public space uh, in which at least on some level people know each other. And he, and he talks about it in relation to like Facebook friends, right? Like we don't know necessarily we can have lots of Facebook friends, uh, yet still be alone and anonymous. And that's where it becomes easy to be uncivil. He says, you don't need to be intimate friends with your barista or the bus driver, but the rhythm of learning the names of people in your daily routines and growing in general familiarity with them creates the sense of membership that thickens local community. I, I find that fascinating. He's like, even the people that you brush up against on a regular basis, as you get to know their names, as yeah. you get to know their story, even on a basic level, it becomes really difficult to be uncivil. Yeah. The, the space for lack of civility is when there's anonymity, when I don't know you, when I could just put something online or whatever else it might be. And, and how much deeper is this kind of concept of thick community need to be within the church? 
where, you know, we're called, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I think that's one of the strong parts of this argument here is this idea of thick community and and actually knowing people's names, actually caring about the people we come in contact with. And that might in in and of itself lead to greater civility. Yeah, let me just read how he ends it. This is always such a good way to end the segment. I think he says civility is necessary because flourishing human communities require its practice and attitude. The only way to survive without civility is to survive in a way that marginalizes deep human connection. Perhaps that's why we lost thick social ties to begin with. At some point between the hum of individual mobility and the soft blue glow of digital depersonalization, we forgot how to know each other. We can remember again, but we may have to die to ourselves first. Again, there's a whole bunch here that we didn't get to. Highly encourage you to read this whole thing. I know that I say that about most articles. I don't usually end a segment being like, do not go read this article. <laughs> Total waste of time. But this one in particular, man, I just found to be surprising at points, convicting at other points. And regardless of you know where you land politically, theologically, I, I just thought it was a really, really important, challenging call and, uh, and certainly worth your time. Coming up next, I'm going to end this segment in a, a bit of a unique way. I want to share a Facebook post that I saw and just sort of talk a little bit about the idea that it proposes. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and I'm on my fourth cup of coffee. And uh, that's, that's extra depressing because we're recording this in the morning. Just as a reminder, anything that we mentioned on the show today that has changed by the time it airs, that's exactly why. This is kind of inside baseball, but Brian and I have a shared Google Doc where uh, each week we alternate who's sort of driving for the week. And the driver decides what articles or segments, uh, not necessarily interviews, but kind of topics and arc for the show. We have another shared doc where we're just kind of posting articles all day long and we can kind of select from those two places. And I don't we don't typically end necessarily like this, but I, I found this Facebook post which I realize already some of you are like rolling your eyes like, great, he's going to read a Facebook post. But I've, I just found it uh, pretty moving. And so I asked Brian not to look at it. So I'm just going to I'm going to read it. So Brian's not heard any of these words. It's not very long. It's kind of a it's kind of a story. And um, so I'm going to read it and then I'm going to kind of get Brian's candid thoughts. And right. I'm doing this intentionally. It has nothing to do with the election or covid or confirmation bias or any of that. It's just a. A bit of an exchange between a father and a son, and uh, I'm going to get Brian's responses. So this will feel a little weird because it's it's written kind of like a script where it just says son, dad, son, dad. So I'm just going to kind of read it without that and hope that it makes sense who's talking. You ready? Yep. All right, here we go. So this is a son to his dad. Daddy, may I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. What is it? Daddy, how much do you make an hour? That's none of your business. Why would you ask such a thing? I just want to know, please tell me, how much do you make an hour? If you must know, I make $100 an hour. Oh. Daddy, may I please borrow $50? The father was furious. If the only reason you ask that is so you can borrow some money to buy a silly toy or some other nonsense, then you march yourself straight to your room and go to bed. Think about why you're being so selfish. I don't work hard for such childish behavior. The little boy quietly went to his room and shut his door. The man sat down and started to get even angrier about the little boy's question. How dare he ask such questions only to get some money? After about an hour or so, the man had calmed down and he started to think. Maybe there was something he really needed to buy with that $50 and he really didn't ask for money very often. The man 
went to the door of the little boy's room and opened the door. The father said, are you asleep, son? No, daddy, I'm awake. I've been thinking, the father replied. Maybe I was too hard on you earlier. It's been a long day and I took my aggravation out on you. Here is the $50 that you asked for. The little boy sat up straight, smiling. Oh, thank you, daddy. And then reaching under his pillow, he pulled out some crumpled up bills. The man saw that the boy already had money, starting to get angry again. The little boy slowly counted out his money and then looked up at his father. The father said, why do you want more money if you already have some? And the son said, because I didn't have enough, but now I do. Daddy, I have $100 now. Can I buy an hour of your time? Please come home early tomorrow. I would like to have dinner with you. The father was crushed. He put his arm around his little son. and He begged for his forgiveness. It's just the sort of reminder that you all are working so hard in your life. We should not let time slip through our fingers without having spent some time with those who really matter to us, those closest to your hearts. If we die tomorrow, the company that we're working for could easily replace us in a matter of days. But the family and friends we leave behind will feel the loss for the rest of their lives. And come to think of it, we pour ourselves more into work than our family. Some things are just more important. What do you think? Uh, I mean, is John playing cats in the cradle underneath this? Yeah, right. Of course. <laughs> it's so it's it, it we all need those wake up calls, right? Like I uh we could always work more and there's nothing wrong with working hard. In fact, that's a good thing and providing for your family, but uh, I've told you this, you and I have kids at very different spots right now. Yours are real little and mine are, you know, uh, 11, 13 and going on 17. And and it is, uh, it sounds so cliche, but man, the days are slow, but the years are fast. They go by so fast and, and you don't want to, you know, when your kids are out of the house and now they're on their lives go, man, I, I wish I had spent more time with them. I wish I had, uh, done this or that. And so, it, but it takes work. It takes prioritizing of going, you know what, I'm going to close the laptop and go throw a ball. I'm going to close the laptop and go uh, take my kids out for ice cream, whatever else it might be. Um, I don't think you could ever regret as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend going, you know what, uh, I got my work done. I did what I needed to do. I worked hard, but at the same time, I kept what was most important, most important. And right. so, yeah, that's poignant. A kid going, hey, can I buy your time, dad, oh. is uh, is heartbreaking. I mean, right. it's it cuts you to the core. But I think we all feel that. There's always more work I can do for the church or the radio show. There's always a lawn to be mowed. There's always dishes to be done, whatever. And those are all important. Right. None of those should just be pushed aside so that I can just hang out with my kids all the time. Uh, but the question is, what are we pushing aside and how often are we pushing aside it? And so, man, I, I appreciate that. I think it's a great reminder for all of us. Make sure your priorities are lined up correctly yeah. uh, and, and let everything flow from those priorities. Yeah, and I think it's it's extra important, too, for those of us who are who are working from home, who are, who are maybe like home and work have become more melded than they ever had. Because and this was true even a year ago, you know, have you ever had coffee with somebody who was like, there but not really there you know like there's mm -hmm. they're technically sitting across the table from you but you know <laughs> their mind is somewhere else i think uh, as parents in particular we can be the same way whether that's with work or just even our own distraction which again we will need throughout the day we need an escape we need some a dumb sitcom just to laugh like we definitely need that now more than ever but i i was extra convicted in the you know you know a year ago it was way it was way more clear like i'm at work because that's a different 
geographical place than I now I'm at home. That was an easier kind of mental shift. But now for a lot of us, it's all sort of merged together. So don't just be physically present, like be, be all there. You know, maybe, maybe that means setting up some parameters around your cell phone or like you were saying, even earlier in the show, when I do and don't answer emails or when I do or don't answer phone calls, those those kinds of things at the very least, like you mentioned, my kids are too young to do something like this, to ask for, I also don't make a hundred dollars an hour, so that's irrelevant, but but, you know, like they're too young to ask for that. Yours are actually maybe at the stage where you could, you could even imagine having an interaction like that, but they likely won't though. So at the very least, I want to end the show with kind of a a call, a challenge, a charge Mm -hmm. to keep the first things first, to work hard at your job and your vocation, your pet. Absolutely. But keep, keep the priorities in line, especially in the coming days and weeks and months, uh, we're going to need each other more than ever. And I think now is the perfect time to take a step back and really evaluate or maybe reevaluate um, where our priorities actually lie. I mean, am I making time for the things that do truly matter most? And it's my prayer that uh, we would make the hard decisions to do that. And with that, our show is done, but fret not. We're back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m., And uh, for Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.